When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Well, hello there, listeners. Welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to episode 396 of Sustainable Minimalists, a show about intentional and eco-friendly minimalist living. On today's show, we are discussing rising cancer rates, particularly rising cancer rates amongst children, and what we can do about it. Now, if you are a long-time listener to the show, you have likely noticed a pattern over the years in which Tuesday's episode is an interview and Thursday's episode is a solo episode. Not true today. I am changing things up and I am bringing you an interview on a Thursday. I know, keeping you on your toes. The reason I'm bringing you this interview on a Thursday is because the information that my guest brings today is just so powerful and so important that I really couldn't wait for a Tuesday to release it. (laughs) I feel as though this information needs to get out into the world right this second, and so here we are. Today I am speaking with Christina Marusik. She is an environmental investigative reporter for Environmental Health Sciences. She is also the author of a new book titled A New War on Cancer, The Unlikely Heroes Revolutionizing Prevention. And again, she's bringing the content today. Christina, I am so thrilled to have you on the show. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. I'm excited to speak with you too. Well, today we're talking about cancer. We're talking about what's happening with cancer rates. So let's start there. What's happening with cancer rates? For a handful of types of cancer, including childhood cancer, we've seen a pretty startling increase over the last 50 years. For some of those specific cancers, including childhood cancer, there's a pretty strong link between developing cancer and being exposed to harmful chemicals in our environment. So if you look at charts for the United States, but then also at the global level and even at the state level or for particular countries, the rates of childhood cancer, just the chart is a diagonal line across the page. So we've seen this really steady, rapid increase in childhood cancer cases in the last 50 years. And then some of the other cancer types we've seen big increases in are things like um, multiple myeloma and Uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I bet all the parents listening, they just felt a little catch (laughs) in their throats as you say that. I also noticed some new research was published, or actually the news cycle picked up this new research earlier this week. In the 30 to 39 age group, cases of cancer have increased in the last 10 years by 19%. 
But what about cancer deaths? I would assume, just as somebody who knows nothing about cancer, that cancer deaths are likely going down. So cancer rates, cancer diagnoses are going up. But what's happening with cancer deaths? Yeah, so the good news is we've gotten a lot better at treating cancer than we used to be. So survival rates for most common types of cancer, at least, are a lot higher than they used to be today. But because we're getting more cancer, you know, that still means that a lot of people die from cancer, unfortunately. And there are a good number of rare cancers that don't get as much research funding and don't get as much attention that still have pretty poor survival rates. I think it's great that we're so much better at at treating cancer than we used to be and so many more people survive. Um, My sister got cancer as a young adult. She was diagnosed with thyroid cancer when she was 25 years old, um, which is what got me interested in this topic. But my sister and anyone else who is a cancer survival would definitely tell you that they would have rather had prevention than treatment, right? Treatment for cancer is not fun. Um, it's really difficult and uncomfortable and painful. People who survive cancer can have lingering effects from cancer, but also from some of the treatments, including chemotherapy that lasts for their whole lives. And right now, only 7 to 9% of global funds for cancer go toward prevention, and all the rest go toward treatment and developing cures. And, uh, you know, those treatments saved my sister's life. I would never say that we should do less of that. Um, but certainly, while we continue developing new treatments and looking for a cure, there's a lot more we could be doing to prevent cancer too. I'm glad you mentioned that because last year, somebody close to me was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and I was one of the caregivers. This was my aunt. She was my first, her or her experience with cancer was my first experience seeing cancer up close and seeing that battle up close. And it was, you said not fun. I would say it was just constant suffering for her. She did make a comment to me, you know, going through chemotherapy. And she said herself, you know, this isn't living. Yeah. And so, yes, um, perhaps cancer deaths are not rising with the cancer rates. However, the focus of this conversation and where I think it should be on a macro level is on prevention. Because again, when we're battling cancer, we're not fully living. That's exactly right. Yeah. Even though rates of death are down, as you said, more than 1,600 Americans still die of cancer every day. So it's not an insignificant number. And by preventing cancer from happening in the first place, we could also prevent a lot of those deaths and a lot of that um, suffering that people endure when they go through treatment. Well, you did mention in your new book that the rising cancer rates cannot be due to genetic changes alone. What's causing this rise in cancer rates? Genetic changes happen over centuries, not decades, right? So this increase we're seeing in cancer cases is way too fast to be the result of genetic changes. And some of it can be accounted for by better diagnostic tools. Um, But for certain types of cancer that are increasing, like childhood leukemia, which is the most common type of childhood cancer, the basic diagnostic tools are exactly the same now as they were back in the 70s. So it's also not just a matter of we're finding more of something that's always been happening, right? And the big thing that has changed in the last 50 years is the number of 
chemicals that raise our cancer risk that we're all exposed to on a daily basis. And research is increasingly finding actually that these exposures don't just matter for us, but that these exposures can influence cancer risk for up to two or three generations. So things that I'm exposed to could influence my great granddaughter's risk of developing childhood cancer or developing cancer as an adult. I was under the impression that there's no clear explanation as to why cancer rates are rising. I was under the impression that it's a variety of factors like rising obesity, like lifestyle factors, including, you know, drinking and smoking, and also like exposure to pollutants and carcinogens in, you know, everything that's around us. Would that be accurate? That is accurate. Yeah. Scientists aren't able to trace one person's cancer case back to what might have caused it specifically. We're just not there yet in the science. But we do know that there are lots of risk factors that influence our cancer risk. And you mentioned things like um, lifestyle behaviors, and uh, those are certainly important and worth paying attention to. But almost all of our cancer prevention efforts so far and right now are focused on those. You know, anytime like a public health department has a budget for cancer prevention, it's like public, public awareness campaigns about quitting smoking and programs geared toward quitting smoking. And those things, again, they're really important and they matter for our health and they're worth paying attention to. But I'm trying to flag that they're not the only things, right? That there are lots of other things that determine our cancer risk. And there are some really big ones, including our exposure to cancer-causing chemicals that could protect a lot of people from getting cancer if we were to take steps to reduce them. There's a model of cancer risk that's been really helpful for me to think about, and it comes from epidemiology. They're called Rothman's causal pies. And so it's one theory for the way that cancer risk works. And it says that we all have a pie chart that contains our various risk factors for cancer. And everyone's pie chart is unique. So it might include things like your genetic predisposition to getting cancer, you know, whether other people in your family have cancer risk, and then things like exposure to secondhand smoke when you were a kid, exposure to air pollution, exposure to carcinogens in your personal care products. And if even one of those slices from your pie chart goes missing, cancer won't develop in you. So if we can take a piece that is common in a lot of people's pies, like being exposed to chemicals that raise our cancer risk in our makeup and beauty products and personal care products, or uh, chemicals we're exposed to at school when we're little, if we can take that piece out of a lot of people's pies simultaneously, then we would have the potential to prevent a ton of cases of cancer. Some of those individual lifestyle factors you mentioned are really important, and I don't want to say they're not, um, but I do want to raise the flag that we pay a lot of attention to those already, and we put a lot of pressure on people to do all those things, right, to eat healthy and not smoke and exercise and live a healthy lifestyle. And uh, one thing I heard 
uh, again and again while I was interviewing experts for this book was that we can't shop our way out of this problem, right? This problem is too big for us to do this all as individuals. So I want to make sure to emphasize that while there are things we can do as individuals to reduce our cancer risk and reduce cancer risk for our kids and our grandkids, um, it's really uh, it's not fair to ask people to do that, especially, you know, a lot of the people who tend to worry about this and think about this are women and are moms and are really busy and we already have a ton on our plates. And so I want to emphasize that you can make some choices that can lower your cancer risk. But what I'm really calling for and urging people to do through the book is to demand better regulations and work towards systemic changes that would make this easier for all of us, right? So we know that we can go to the store and buy any product and it's not going to raise our cancer risk or our kids' cancer risk because that's how it should be. And the United States is behind on that. There are a lot of countries in the world that are doing a much better job at regulating these chemicals. Well, there was a phrase in your book, Christina, that I really liked. And I want to take the rest of our conversation, the rest of our time today to discuss your thoughts on it. The phrase was preventable environmental exposures. And with your buy-in, I'd love to just go through a human being's life cycle, starting in utero, and go through, you know, what are the preventable environmental exposures that we can be paying attention to? Three categories of pollutants that have really clear links in the scientific literature to childhood cancer risk. And those are uh, pesticides, paints and solvents, and traffic-related pollution. And I think what's really surprising about all three of these categories is that we're seeing that it's not just exposures during pregnancy or during infancy that matter, but also parents' exposure, even before conception can raise your child's cancer risk. Some of them are easier to avoid than others, right? If you live right next to a highway, you're going to be exposed to more traffic-related emissions and be a good idea to filter the air in your home. And the best way to filter the air in your home is using a HEPA filter. Those can be really expensive, but there's a really cool uh, DIY version with a box fan that's um, very inexpensive. And if you Google it, you can find out how to like affix a HEPA filter to a box fan and run it to purify your indoor air. Paints and solvents are a little easier to avoid if you are pregnant or hoping to become pregnant. I would not be in the house while your home is being painted. Um, if your office is being painted, I would avoid that too. Um, this is one that is a little surprising because I think everyone, when they're like getting a nursery ready <laughs> to paint the house, right? And there's not a lot of awareness about this. But if you're using paints or solvents, which are like, um, you know, like paint stripper, something that's kind of used that's like industrial strength, they smell really bad, they're used in construction. I would just avoid those to the extent that you can. If your house has been painted and you're coming back in, that's another good time to open the windows, air out the house have an air filter running. Um, when it comes to pesticides, eating organic whenever that's accessible is one easy way to avoid ingesting a lot of pesticides and avoiding using things like Roundup or even like indoor pesticides that are for like rodents or bugs. There are some really good, um, you know, non-toxic pest management programs you can look into. And I think it's worth 
avoiding the risk if you're pregnant or thinking about becoming pregnant or you have young kids in the house um, to really try to avoid having them come into contact with pesticides. I have some clarifying questions, if that's okay. This is like a rapid fire. <laughs> Let's get Stephanie to understand what you're saying, if that's okay. The first is on paints. What about low or no VOC paints? I hear a lot of, about that in the environmental leaning community. It's better for the planet. Is it also better for our growing fetuses? Yeah, absolutely. VOCs are benzene. We know is a VOC that we know is linked to childhood leukemia. So anytime you can opt for low VOC paints, it's going to be better. There are some issues with like paints and construction products in general, where there's not a lot of uh, transparency about ingredients and there's not really a good, um, you know how there's like a really high bar for food to be designated organic. And there's like this third party verification system. We don't really have that for stuff like paint and construction products. So there's some greenwashing that goes on where stuff might be labeled you know, non-toxic. And then it's really hard to like get an actual ingredient list or know how non-toxic it really is. So in general, I would say the stuff that says low VOC or non-toxic is better, but if it's feasible for you to still kind of like avoid direct contact with it, I would say that's probably a good idea to be on the safe side. Okay. And then my other quick question was with regard to pesticides, I know you mentioned that this is something good to do for pregnant expectant moms to stay away from these three things. But what about as our children grow up, as we're adults, I would assume that paints, car pollution and pesticides are bad for us all the time. And especially pesticides. I saw an interesting statistic once that a child who grows up in a home in which the parents spray the yard for bugs with pesticides, they have a much higher risk of developing, I believe it was leukemia. Do you have anything to say on that? Yeah, pesticides in general definitely raise our cancer risk throughout our lives. And there are a lot of pesticides that are still in use in the United States that have been banned in many other parts of the world because of the very clear science on their health risk. So uh, to the extent that you can avoid contact with pesticides, using pesticides altogether, I would absolutely recommend that. When I see my neighbors out with like Roundup spraying the weeds, especially if I know they have little kids or little pets that are playing in the yard, it stresses me out. <laughs> it's hard to know if you like, I don't say anything because nobody likes that neighbor, right? But I'm definitely not doing that in my yard. And I can't imagine that the benefit of having a few fewer dandelions in your yard is worth raising your cancer risk or your kid's cancer risk for. Mm. Well, Christina, we have to take our ad break, but when we come back, I want to talk about, let's assume that our theoretical baby has been born. Uh, maybe perhaps they're toddling, perhaps they're in daycare. What should we as concerned parents be looking out for? I'm going to ask you that question after a quick sponsor break. So many of us have chaotic closets that are crammed full of clothing items, and yet somehow 
we still have nothing to wear. Well, upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince when you need them is a game changer. They offer organic cotton sweaters and washable silk tops. My 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters are my go-to. Not only are they affordable, but the quality is top-notch. They wear better than the cashmere sweaters that are double their price. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash sustainable podcast for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sustainable podcast to get free shipping and 365 day returns. One more time, quince.com slash sustainable podcast. Hello, Sustainable Minimalist listeners. Are you committed to living a greener and simpler life? Well, meet Home Threads, your ally in more sustainable and minimalist home decor. As the total destination for decor and furniture, Home Threads helps you define your minimalist lifestyle while respecting the planet. Discover their exclusive Haven collection. They use many sustainable materials without compromising on style. And here's the best part. Home Threads always has the best value. It was time. After nine years of living in our home, it was time to replace our outdoor furniture. And my husband and I, we went to Home Threads. We have a Home Threads patio umbrella and a new bench. And oh my goodness, we are so in love. Create a home that reflects your commitment to the environment. Visit homethreads.com slash sustainable and get a code for 15% off your first order. Homethreads.com slash sustainable. Love where you live. And we're back. Today I'm speaking with Christina Marusik. She is an environmental investigative reporter. She is also the author of the new book, titled A New War on Cancer, The Unlikely Heroes Revolutionizing Prevention. Before the break, Christina, you gave us the big three, right? The big three being paints, car pollution, and pesticides. All Ps. I love it. Easy to remember. Let's talk about newborn babies and toddlers. What are the biggest preventable environmental exposures that we as parents should be looking out for? Another big source of our exposure to chemicals that raise our cancer risk throughout our lives is plastic and our contact with plastic. I think it's important to mention that, you know, you asked if we should, if pesticides are particularly harmful for little ones, or we should be avoiding them all our lives. And for most of these substances we're talking about today, there are risks throughout our lives, but Uh, kids and babies are particularly vulnerable, right? Relative to their body size, they breathe more air, they drink more water, and they eat more food than adults. And then they also have these really complex bodily systems that are still developing. And for all of that development to happen correctly, there are thousands of very intricate little steps that need to happen in precise sequence. And so any interruption to those processes can cause health problems, including raising cancer risk. And then also because those systems are still developing, kids and babies' bodies aren't as able as adults to flush out toxic chemicals that we're exposed to and remove them from their systems and remove them from their bodies because they're just not mature yet, right? They're not fully developed. So when it comes to 
most of these things, including the chemicals that are used in plastic, it's not great for anyone, but then kids are kind of particularly vulnerable to these harmful exposures. My sister, who I mentioned earlier, who had thyroid cancer, um, is doing great now. She's been in remission for 10 years and she has two super cute little kids, um, my niece and nephew, who I love being an aunt to. And she's had a lot of questions about this. So it's something we've talked about extensively over the last couple of years as she's been raising babies. And one of the biggest things I told her that I think is pretty easy to do is not to eat plastic. So if your kids or babies are using plastic bottles or plastic dishware, or if you have like plastic baby food containers that say they're microwavable, um, things that say they're microwave safe that are plastic. That just means that the plastic's not going to melt. It doesn't mean it's safe for human consumption because for the most part, that's not being assessed when it comes to those labels. And microwaving plastic or heating plastic can cause um, chemicals that can raise our cancer risk and cause all kinds of other health problems to leach from plastic into the food we're consuming. I think it's also important to say that like, it's impossible to do a perfect job. You know, this is why I'm saying we need to regulate these chemicals and we need to make this easier on parents to make these choices. And so it's not about being perfect. It's not really all or nothing. It's just kind of reducing these exposures where you can. As you're talking there, Christina, I'm, I must be honest and I'm sure I'm not alone. I have a lot of maternal guilt as you're talking and I'm sure my listeners who are moms and their kids are older, you know, they're probably thinking, oh, I did this wrong or, oh, I did this for me. Like I, um, nursed, but I saved milk in plastic bags and put them in the freezer. And then when I needed one, I just heated it up in that plastic bag. And so I'm thinking, oh no. And I'm thinking about how, you know, my daughters, when they were toddlers, that rhymes, uh, they, in their playroom, they had one of those plasticky mats. I don't know what the right term is to describe, but I know they're terrible now and I didn't know then. And so I just want to say thank you for mentioning that it's not about being perfect. Um, It's not about eliminating 100% exposure. The past is in the past. We can't do anything about it, but it's about knowing more so we can do better going forward. Now let's talk about the personal care products. There's so many personal care products for babies, shampoo, body wash, bubble bath, lotion, baby powder. I mean, we could go on and on. What should we be looking for in all of those products? The easiest way to kind of pick less toxic versions of personal care products is there are a couple of online resources that I use. I personally really like the Environmental Working Group's Healthy Living app. They're a nonprofit that does their own testing of products and then ranks them on the basis of whether they contain ingredients that raise uh, cancer risk and then also all kinds of other negative health effects. And they give like a seal of approval saying this product, you know, is free of all of these chemicals. It's an app. And so you can like scan stuff. You can scan barcodes with it, which is cool, but I have actually found it much easier to, um, rather than just like trying to scan every product I think I might want to buy, go in and, you know, if I'm out of something and I'm ready to buy a new one, I just type in shampoo and then I find one that they have verified as non-toxic and I try that. And so I think that is one easy way to approach it is find a program like that. There's another online program um, called the Anti-Cancer Lifestyle Program. 
And they have tons of free resources that are specifically about this. Like, what can I do as an individual to lower my risk? What steps can I take? And they cover everything from food to cleaning products, personal care products. For me, I think it's easiest to just kind of go in by category, pick something non-toxic. A lot of those products are on Amazon or you can buy them online. So it makes it pretty easy because it's really hard. Otherwise, you're trying to like memorize which ingredients are harmful and read every single ingredient list. And and I talked to researchers for the book who, you know, I talked to one woman who has a PhD in organic chemistry and she's like, even I cannot shop carefully enough to totally protect my family from this stuff because it's just everywhere. And then also I really encourage people to um, call your legislators and ask them to do a better job of protecting us all from these chemicals so we don't have to feel stressed out every time we have to buy baby shampoo. I'm going to talk to you about demanding better regulation at the end of this show, because you've mentioned that point a couple times. And I do think that's where the, the lion's share of all of our efforts should be. Yes, it does take an awful lot of time to research baby shampoo and your own shampoo and your lotion and this and that. Um, and right, that onus of responsibility to find something that doesn't harm us, <laughs> that should not be on us. However, I will just say for listeners who are listening right now and they're feeling overwhelmed, like, oh my gosh, I have all this um, potentially carcinogenic beauty products in my home for me and my baby and my children. I would say that, yes, there is definitely an upfront cost of your time to find the products that um, are safer. And I know this because I went through this. I went through about a year of trying a safer product. Oh, it didn't work. Try another one, like find it, research, et cetera, over and over. It was a hamster wheel. But there is light at the end of that extra time, effort, energy tunnel, because once you find the products that you like and are safer and work, then you don't ever have to think about it again. And so I just say that like, once you get over the hump, it's over. You've done it. You've safified your home, (laughs) saferified. That's not a word, but hopefully everybody knows what I'm trying to say. So let's leave the beauty products behind and let's talk about another place, another area that um, we should, another item (laughs) perhaps that we should be concerned about. You can just take it away. So one thing I wrote about in the book is daycares and early childhood learning centers and elementary schools. There's a lot we can do at home, but then for most working parents at a certain point, our kids are spending a big chunk of the day not in our home, right? And I wrote about a program that certifies daycares called the Eco Healthy Child Care Program. And as far as I know, this is the only program that does this for daycares. There are a lot of resources for elementary schools. There's a really good EPA program for elementary schools that you can ask your school board to think about if they haven't already by the time your kids get to school age. But when you're sending your kids to daycare, there are kind of really few options for this. And there have been a couple of studies that measured like VOCs inside daycares and found much higher levels than you would want when you think about your kids spending your days there. And part of the reason is there are really stringent requirements for cleaning and sanitation at daycare facilities. And so a lot of facilities just kind of like use a lot of bleach or a lot of really harsh cleaning products. And then 
those things can linger in the air. Um, a lot of times they're microwaving stuff in plastic there to when it's lunchtime for kids or they're treating the playground with pesticides. Another thing we can do as parents is either find a daycare that has been verified by this program or another like it. There might be regional ones that I'm not aware of. This is a national program and they would likely advertise that they have been certified as an eco-healthy childcare center. Or you can ask your existing daycare if they would go through that program. It's a free program and trainers actually go to the facilities to get certified. Daycares have to comply with I think it's 30 out of 35 low cost or free measures that reduce uh, environmental pollutants for kids while they're in daycare. And that includes things like less toxic pest control measures, not microwaving food in plastic, using um, less harmful cleaning products, switching out plastic toys for less toxic versions. They also, it's a long list. They include things like not letting cars idle in places where kids are going to breathe in, you know, we talked about traffic related pollution, right? So they think about traffic, they think about playground safety, they're thinking about non-toxic paints and art supplies. Um, So it's a really wide ranging list. What a great suggestion. Thank you so much for offering that up. I'm thinking though, you know, my kids are in elementary school now, the daycare days are behind us. I think I need to have a conversation with their public school. I don't know how I would have a conversation with my school principal about uh, making the indoor air environment safer, um, but I'm going to think about that. If you have any thoughts, let me know. <laughs> yeah, there are some. I mentioned that the EPA has a healthier, healthy schools program that addresses some of this, um, and they have really good templates that you could send to your school and checklists of things to do. There are a couple of programs. I know I looked up one once that had a template to send to your principal or school board that was like a ready to go letter saying, hey, I think we should pay some attention to these issues just as a way to start the conversation. I can try and track that down and send you a link after we talk. I think in general, like talking to other parents or talking to people who are on the school board can be a good way to approach this issue. And there's a lot of information about this actually in in my book. I profiled Nse Obot Witherspoon, who is the director of the Children's Environmental Health Network. But she also spoke with me about like what she did when her kids, she has four kids, about how she approached her kids' elementary school when they were in school and like finding that balance of not being like that crazy parent who's like, we can't stop cleaning the classrooms and, um, you know, kind of encouraging healthier practices at school. I loved that part of your book. I thought it was really powerful and action oriented because again, nobody wants to be that neighbor. Nobody wants to be that apparent. And on top of that, at least in my life, my personal life, it seems as though nobody else is concerned about these things. I mean, the pickup line at school, everybody's idling. Nobody stop. Nobody turns their car off. Like the, you know, neighbors, I think I'm the only house on my street that doesn't spray for pesticides. And so it can be scary and daunting to be the loud mouth, I suppose. And so I really loved that particular part of your book, Miss Witherspoon's story, because I thought she advocated for her children's health in the right way. 
So let's take a little jump in time. We were talking about daycare and, you know, schools. Let's assume that our theoretical child is an adult. I'm guessing that as adults, this theoretical child and all of us, we should be continuing to pay attention to the preventable environmental exposures you've already covered. But are there any other preventable environmental exposures that adults or young adults or older adults should be looking at? One other category I cover in the book is healthy building materials. And this is something that you know, if you don't work in construction, most of us aren't going to think about too often, but can be really good to think about if you're about to do a home renovation or redo your basement, add on a deck. I mentioned that there are some problems with transparency in paints and building materials, but there are some organizations doing really cool work to change that. And there are some programs and resources you can use to really find less toxic building materials. As Americans, we spend something like more than 90% of our time indoors. The building materials we use influence cancer risk for the people who do the building, right? They're in really direct contact with those products, but then also they can off-gas over time. So it also matters what our homes are made of. And unfortunately, it's kind of typical to use stuff that can be really harmful to our health because we need those products to last, right? You need roofing material that's going to stand up to the elements. And oftentimes that means using slightly toxic materials. So I think if you're about to do a home renovation, that's a great time to think about, oh, are there some options for healthier building materials I could find? Put a kind of contractor who knows about this, who cares about this, who is thinking about this. One other kind of big category we haven't talked about is air pollution. So we talked about traffic emissions, but um, if you live in an urban area, it's likely that your air pollution exposure is also raising your cancer risk generally. They're finding more and more that, um, you know, we know that air pollution can cause lung cancer, but it's also increasingly being linked to other types of cancer, especially if you live somewhere where there's a lot of industrial activity. I live in Pittsburgh. We have a ton of industrial air pollution here still. So they're are some more harmful elements in the air pollution here than in some other places that are maybe dealing with like wildfire pollution more regularly, for example. And one of the big things you can do when it comes to avoiding harmful exposures for air pollution is avoiding really strenuous exercise outdoors on a bad air quality day. You can check your local air quality at, I think it's airnow.gov. And then there's also, um, Purple monitors, purple air monitors, so like individual air monitors you can hang on your back porch so you can really know the air quality like at your house. But then they have a map and you can go to the map and see everyone's purple air monitors in your area. That data isn't like verified in the way that government air quality data is, but it can be really helpful to get a sense of how bad is the air pollution in your region. Um, if you're in the an orange or red zone, um, I would avoid going for a run outdoors. I would exercise indoors that day because when we breathe really deeply outdoors um, on a bad air pollution day, those air pollution particles can penetrate deep into our lung tissue and enter our bloodstream and cause inflammation and raise our cancer risk. Hmm. So let's bring this conversation back around to the major point that I think you've been 
making throughout our time together, which is that it's on all of us listening right now to demand better regulation because the United States, in terms of regulation of these carcinogens, we are behind. Where do we start? How do we do this? The good news is we didn't just start from scratch. There are some really brilliant people and uh, organizations that have been working on this issue for decades and have made some really good progress that most of us aren't even aware of. And so one of the easiest things we can do is follow these organizations that are leading this work. And I have a big list of them in the appendix of my book, but a couple off the top of my head are Silent Spring Institute, the Environmental Working Group, the Cancer-Free Economy Network. Follow them on social media, sign up to get their newsletters. Then when there's a timely call to action, we can all help out. So if there's a piece of federal legislation up that would ban the use of a harmful pesticide, we can call the right lawmakers and urge them to vote it through. Another thing we can do is reach out to our representatives at the local, state, and federal level just to let them know that this issue is really important to us. I spoke with someone recently who said, who had a relative who worked in like a state legislature. And she was like, they never hear from people. Like if three people call them about the same issue, they're like, oh my God, we better pay attention to this. People are really worked (laughs) So it's actually like surprisingly rare for lawmakers to hear from their constituents. And so even just taking some time to send an email, a phone call is always a little more impactful. Call and say, hey, I'm really concerned about the ways we're exposed to cancer-causing chemicals in our everyday lives. And I want to make sure that this issue is on our radar and that you're doing what you can for your constituents to keep us safer. Um, It can really help put the issue on their radar and make them understand that their constituents care about this, right? And then if you can get two other friends to do that too, even better. Another big thing we can do is uh, apply market pressure. And I think we tend to, when we think about like shopping with our wallets, we tend to just think like, okay, stop buying the bad products, start buying the good product. But we can really amplify the impact of those choices if we take a couple extra minutes to let both companies know. So if you've been using uh, mascara your whole life, that's your favorite mascara, and then you realize it has chemicals in it that are raising your cancer risk, so you decide to stop using it and switch to a cleaner version. If you take 10 extra minutes to tell company A, whoever it is, hey, I've loved your product my whole life. I'm not buying it anymore because it contains harmful ingredients. I'm switching to this other product. And then you tell company B, hey, thank you so much for not using these (laughs) chemicals in your products. I switched and I'm really pleased with your product. That can help amplify the impact of those choices. They're not going to really notice that one person stopped buying their mascara, right? But again, they don't hear from consumers as often as you might think. So if they get an email from someone saying, I've, or even better, a tweet, if it's kind of public, right? Wow, I've used this product my whole life and now I'm not. That can make a bigger impact. I just want to echo something you said there, Christina, about how our elected representatives actually rarely hear from us and these companies actually rarely hear from consumers. Listeners, we're not going to change the world if we stay silent, right? Uh, And I'm thinking about myself. I'm saying that to myself too. Like if I am scared to be that annoying parent at elementary school, I'm not going to change anything by keeping my mouth shut. And so thank you for mentioning all of that. I think that is the take-home message today. 
Christina, I want to thank you so much for your time. I want to thank you for bringing the content today. Holy moly, you brought it. (laughs) I am leaving with some actionable steps and I know my listeners are as well. So thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. Listeners, that's a wrap. Show notes are at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 396. And there are tons of links inside. Christina offered many tips, thoughts, action steps, resources, and they're all in the show notes for you. Mamaminimalist.com forward slash 396. We do have an eco tip today and it comes from my girl Dana. She is always emailing me the amazing eco tips and this one's no different. Dana said that somebody in her life shreds papers and gives it all, the shredding, to people who are moving for packing, and she gives it to them as a plastic-free option to keep safe our fragile items. She also said that shredding papers, so it's great to give to people who are moving, Shredded papers is also great to give to your friends or family who have chickens because the shredded papers can be used in the chicken's nesting beds. So Dana, thank you so much. I love your eco tips. Listeners, we'll be back tomorrow for headlines. I will see you then. Reach out if you need me. Reach out if you like me. Reach out if you don't like me. I'm here for all of it. I'll see you tomorrow and take care.